Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, and welcome to Aranax, a podcast from Fathom World about the transformation of the ocean and shipping space. I'm Craig Eason, and every week or so I take a voyage around the industry looking at some of the latest changes. In this episode, I want to begin a journey on unmanned ships, or autonomous ships, or whatever you want to call them. There's been a lot of headlines about the ghost ships coming, fleets of them in convoys, sailing the seas without a soul on board, being seen as perhaps the death of the seafarer, a talisman, good or bad, about humankind's obsession with technology and developing AI. Now let me add one other thing here. While I'm keen to advocate technology of all kinds, and as a journalist enjoy thinking up a good headline, I've never subscribed to the idea that there will be fleets of ghost ships sailing the seas in my career. In other words, before about 2050, simply because of commercial reasons and the way that the rules need to be agreed. But there will be some of these vessels. And what I'm going to do with this short series within the Aranax podcast is look at what is going on right now, what the differences are between the projects we can look at and how the technologies can be used. I also want to look at some other key questions. How commercial is it to run an unmanned and an autonomous ship? And look at who assumes the command of a ship, and particularly the training, and the training of who, and what are the rules. But first, let's begin with what we mean by an autonomous ship and an unmanned ship, and see where these two terms tend to get mixed. Luckily, some of the class societies, like Lloyd's Register, have thought about this already. But importantly, so has the IMO, the International Maritime Organization, which, as the UN body setting the rules for international shipping, has already written the four stages of autonomy. But in essence, an autonomous ship is one with an onboard system that can make decisions relating to navigation and safety. It may or may not have a crew on board. And an unmanned ship is one where there are no people on board but there may be a remote operator ashore in a control room taking the helm, so to speak, or it could be an unmanned autonomous vessel. But there is also something I think should also be understood. There's a difference between the autonomous craft that make the headlines today. First, there's the research and military vessels. We've covered the adventures of Seakit on Fathom World, a small unit that is less of a ship and more of an autonomous platform for hosting research and demonstrating capabilities that could be later deployed as a ship. And we have also heard about the Mayflower project, which aims to celebrate the 400th anniversary of the original Mayflower, which sailed for America in 1620. But what about the Yara Birkeland, the vessel that hit the headlines as the world's first commercial ship? And that's part of the difference. I needed an overview of the projects that are going on. So I called Ornulf Rodseth, senior scientist at the Norwegian research organization Sintef Ocean. He not only coordinates the Norwegian Forum for Autonomous Ships, he's also behind the International Network for Autonomous Ships. I wanted to know about the range of projects and the commercial activities that are currently under development and what his projections are for the future. So, so the projects uh, we currently know of is, of course, uh, Yara Birkland, that, uh, that has been put on hold now, which is a combination of the COVID crisis and the cost of the infrastructure. Actually, it's not the ship. The ship is already in Norway, but it will 
take some time before they start the project again. Uh, uh, and that is exactly what I'm talking about. It, it's a very dedicated uh, transport in in, uh, in a kind of a limited area with uh, remote control from Masterly, probably. We'll see. Um, there's another project in Norway which has not been signed yet, but uh, it's a similar one with um, a kind of ferry for um, electric trucks. And that's part of a full electrification of the transport chain for one of the retail distributors in Norway, ASCO. And they want to connect two warehouses on each side of the Oslo Fjord with electric trucks. If they use the tunnel, they will have problems with the inclination and energy use and also the regularity of the tunnel. So they are now investigating whether they should set up their own ferry service with autonomous ships. So, so that's a fairly uh, advanced, but still without the contract on. But it's a, it's a real commercial uh, project. Uh, the third project, which is um, also actually ongoing in uh, here in Trondheim, is a small passenger ferry called Alto Ferry. That's driven by the university, but uh, the idea again is, is to make an operational system which is going to replace a small footbridge over a canal. So, so, so these are the three projects I know of. Uh, then we have uh, activities uh, in uh, Belgium uh, with uh, Blue Line Logistics, which are currently operating one-man uh, uh, vessels, but are looking into also removing uh, the last person on board, so to speak. Um, they are also working with the UK, uh, with what they call the Anglo-Belgian Shipping Company. And they are planning to set up uh, um, a container route across the channel uh, between uh, Belgium and UK. Uh, and again, I, I think the, the same thing is going on uh, all over the place. It's it's not too complicated, the systems you are setting up, because that would create a lot of problems with the approvals and all that stuff. So keep it simple and stupid, which has always has been one of the principles in the maritime sector. Uh, apart uh, from that, we also have an EU project called Altoship. Uh, quite a big one, which is going to demonstrate uh, real autonomous operation for uh, aquaculture feed transport uh, in Norway and Denmark, and uh, the same uh, Belgian inland water, waterway case uh, with uh, Blue Land Logistics. And that will, that will uh, have a, a full approval of the ship concepts and do that demonstration. So these are the projects I know that is uh, to some degree advanced and, and probably will demonstrate autonomous operation. Those are some of the European projects, but there are more. Japan was known to have developed and tested an unmanned vessel system back in the 1980s. And there are the reports of an autonomous vessel being built in China, as well as investment of about $100 million by the South Korean government into autonomous vessel systems. But Orna Vrolsev sees these developments in a different light to the likes of the Yara Birkeland, the ASCO vessels in Norway, and the plans for systems in European waterways and across the channel to the UK, for example. Korea, Japan and China is quite active in this area and uh, putting a lot of money into it. Korea recently launched a new program to the value of 100 uh, million euro to develop a real automation. Um, however, 
as far as I'm concerned, I haven't seen that these projects are connected to a business case. It's a project that is going to demonstrate something, but it's not really putting it into an existing or a new type of uh, transport business uh, operation. So that's, I think it's a different, at least for the time being, between uh, Europe and Asia. Several of the projects in, in, in Europe is actually driven by, by business cases uh, rather than technology, which is a quite important point, I'd say. Um, and of course, as, as you say, this has been going on uh, since the 1980s. And, uh, and I would say that the, the reason why it is uh, happening now is, is you could call it a side effect of this Industry 4 thing that happened in, uh, in Germany in uh, 2010 about with the increased robotics, uh, automatic uh, vision systems and all that stuff, which is now uh, more or less... Uh, spilling over into the maritime sector. The, the technology becomes available and uh, cost-effective. Ornolf sees a keen difference between the projects that demonstrate technological capabilities, whether running scientific research or backed by government money to demonstrate some national advances in technology, and those commercial projects that work because of the involvement of the cargo owners like Yara. But what is autonomous and how will the companies behind these systems, when they emerge, see them controlled? Will they be like robots with a free mind, able to go where they want across the seas and harbours of the world? It's important to understand that we are not uh, talking about fully autonomous ships, totally without people in the loop and stuff like that. Most of the, the project we are um, looking at or um, participating in is based on having a human somewhere in the loop. And this makes sense for the big ships because of the value of the ship and so on. Uh, and this uh, makes it much, much easier to realize than um, autonomous cars, for instance, because you don't have to put more automation into it than you need to get the reasonable uh, crewing in the remote control center. So, so you have a flexibility in how much automation or intelligence or whatever you want to call it, you put it on the ship. So that's a very, very important uh, premise, actually. Now, Ornolf didn't mention too much about the smaller autonomous craft, the research craft that are currently under development, vessels like Seakit and Mayflower. These are two projects based in the UK with somewhat similar goals in terms of autonomous system capabilities to demonstrate and look at moving forwards to practical applications. The Mayflower project is based in Plymouth, England, where the original Mayflower set sail 400 years earlier, September the 6th, 1620 to be exact, though without some challenges before it. Today's Mayflower is set to sail around the same date, and I called up Brett Farnuf, an American now living in Plymouth, and it was his idea to celebrate the pilgrims with this autonomous research vessel. I've been thinking about all sorts of different things with autonomy and, and uh, automation, robotics, subsea exploration for many, many years. And um, I happened to grow up near Plymouth, Massachusetts, and also live in Plymouth, UK now. I have had a past career as an archaeologist and historian before I got into the engineering side of things. And um, it happened to also be, uh, well, about 2016, and we knew that four years away was the Mayfair. So all those things sort of coalesced into uh, some thinking about how we could involve ourselves with that celebration and sort of commemorate the event. And I was having a meeting with the city of Plymouth and uh, about a variety of different things. 
And they were just sort of discussing the idea of having a, a replica Mayflower built to sail as a training ship. And I, I thought that wasn't a particularly good idea and that instead we should be inspired by the history, the anniversary, the sort of daring of these people to jump off into the new world and with no guarantee of making it or surviving. And sort of this idea of a new beginning. And, and, but, but build something that spoke to the next 400 years in maritime enterprise, not something that sort of recreated the last 400 or what happened 400 years ago, literally. And so the, you know, the problem with a 17th century ship is that if you build one, then what you're left with is a 17th century ship. So unless you came to work on a horse this morning, um, I, I don't have a lot of, a lot, uh, a lot of stock in that opinion about, uh, building replicas. So I, I, it really is a multifaceted project to celebrate the 400th anniversary. And then for me personally, it's a way to explore new ways of collecting data and doing science at sea, um, the applications of machine learning and AI. And that's the most interesting research part to me is how do you do this without people drive the cost down, democratize the collection of data so that we can have more information ultimately produced about our environment so we can better, be better stewards of the planet. Uh, and then, of course, we'll be collecting data, literally in meteorological, oceanographic, climatological data as we that, that, That's actually one of the next questions that I had was about what you're going to be doing when you, um, when sure. the, the vessel takes this voyage um, later this year, when it starts this voyage. Does it have a number of um, objectives? And who's well, becoming yeah. involved in it? I know that IBM, a very large part of this project, but... yeah. Who's, Lots who's of involved objectives. in the project? Lots of objectives and a lot of people involved. So the project is led by Promare, which is a nonprofit institute that's uh, funding the build of the ship. And then, of course, Promare is the most prolific partner with the enabling technology. And then <clears throat> several of my companies, M-Subs, is designing and building the ship along with Marine AI, which is working directly with uh, IBM to produce the sort of the AI system that will uh, pilot the ship or captain the ship across the ocean. And then we've got uh, University of Liverpool, Newcastle, uh, NTNU, University of Birmingham, and a, and a vast array of uh, commercial partners as well um, that are contributing technology, equipment, sensors, uh, you name it. So people like Vodafone and um, Veilport and, as you know, IBM and, uh, Veripause for precision positioning, and, uh, all sorts of different things, almost innumerable. Wartzilla is providing a new prototype radar system. And so we'll be collecting data about uh, atmospheric pressure, precipitation, temperature, uh, humidity, wind speed, direction, uh, particulate matter. We'll be doing all the sort of basic oceanographic uh, conductivity uh, temperature, depth, where we can. We won't have a full ocean depth sounder, but whenever we can, uh, get to the bottom with what we can carry. And then um, we're looking at uh, fluorometry. We're looking at uh, particulates, uh, opacity. We're looking at um, particles of plastic. So we're going to be sampling and bringing water samples back to be sieved to look for the distribution of uh, microplastics, which is an important topic these days. Um, and then, of course, all the AI research. So, you know, how do you make it do it? How do you steer the ship safely? How do you update models? Um, how do you interface with manned vessels at sea? All that kind of stuff. Um, we'll be taking 
place uh, and we'll backhaul some of the data. We have a low bandwidth near earth orbiting satellite network connection. So we'll be able to get back data about the ship and its dynamics and its performance and some of the data metrics, but not all of it. And then, uh, and then uh, we'll, we'll process all that and place it on a, on a portal um, that IBM's developing. So you'd be able to dial in or I shouldn't say dial, I'm dating myself. You'd be able to log on and see what the ship is doing, where it is, what data it's collecting, um, what things it's had to do that day to maintain safe navigation. And then all the information or all the data and information about the ocean and the climate and the atmosphere um, we collect to be made available free for anybody to use for whatever they like on, uh, on the web portal. When, when it comes to the, the actual voyage itself, um, I believe at the moment you're doing some of the trials to ensure that... No, everything. we're a little bit delayed from COVID. We haven't started trials yet, but we will shortly. So, but the idea is, though, that the, the, the vessel will get into the water very soon. You'll do the trials properly. Um, yes. And then are you expecting to take the vessel out to a specific waypoint and then put it into an autonomous mode and no. sail. What's the process going to be? We're going to, yeah, once we're confident with the system, we're just going to tell the ship to go to Plymouth, Massachusetts, and it will go. It'll plan its own route. It'll look at weather connected to the weather company. We've got a, you know, IBM happy for weather, dealing with the satellite weather companies. And then we're dealing with, you know, all the issues you would have about waves and periodicity and current and oceanographic data you need for navigation and then sort of the general goal in this case will be just get there um, and collect data. Um, but we won't be giving it any waypoints. It'll just go by itself, calculate how it gets there with all the different variables and how to adjust to them real time without any human input and transit to the other side. It'll stop in Provincetown first, which is where the pilgrims originally landed and we'll spend a little time there and then we'll go up to Plymouth. But we shouldn't have to have any intervention. We'll escort it in and out once we get close to either end. But um, that's just because we can, uh, as opposed to <laughs> wanting to. Um, it, the one thing it can't do is dock by itself. So we'll have to take control of it at the very, very end, and at the very beginning to undock and at the very, very end to dock it. Uh, with, with a small boat, we'll come alongside and attach to it and then shepherd it to its, to its pier. But yeah, pretty much all by itself. It shouldn't need any manned assistance whatsoever. What about actually in the in the Atlantic itself? The Atlantic can be in a particularly rough yeah. um, stretch of water, extremely high waves, particularly vicious storms at sure. times. Well, we're not we're not sure. You know, I mean, I, I can't tell you for a fact it will make it, but then the original Mayflower didn't have that surety either. I mean, the and, biggest concern isn't. Uh, isn't the AI the biggest concern? It's as you know, it's the ocean, right? So there's uh, much bigger ships on the bottom of the sea, and uh, the, the the ocean's going to win in any fight. So we'll pick our moments and hope for the best. We hear from Brett in other episodes when we look at the development of technologies and how the research voyages like Mayflower and others can contribute to the commercial aspect of unmanned and autonomous ships. I mentioned the Ara Birkeland earlier. The vessel hit the headlines when the technology firm Kongsberg and others promoted their technical savvy and capabilities of the vessel. But just like the Mayflower, it too has been hit by the coronavirus pandemic. Yes, the irony of an unmanned vessel project suffering because of the virus is not lost on me. I wanted to know what the latest is on the vessel, so I spoke to Pierre Melling at Masterly and Willemsen, based in Oslo, Norway. On one hand, to ask about the future of commercial autonomous vessels in the industry, 
and how we will train people for the roles that come in the systems, that's for the next episode. But also, I wanted to hear about the vessel's construction and what's happening now. Well, the Yara Birkland Hull has been uh, fitted already in Romania at, at Vard's um, yard there, and it has already been brought to Norway. So it is now uh, at Vard in Brattvog, outside Ålesund, on the west coast of Norway, uh, being finalized from, from Vard from the yard side. And there hasn't actually been a lot of delay in the building of the vessel. Uh, it, the vessel was scheduled for delivery this year, and it will actually be delivered from the yard this year after the summer somehow. Uh, but the project is so much more than the vessel. The vessel itself is just one part of a logistics chain for Yara from their production plant at Harea to the discharge port. And there is a lot of investments that needs to be done also on the port side for this project. It, as, as you may recall, it's quite ambitious project with autonomous mooring system, a robotic arm from McGregor. Uh, there's autonomous um, moving of the containers on the, on the port side. There's autonomous crane uh, from uh, Kalmar. So, and of course, there's a new IT system as well that needs to be in place to make all this work together. So this is a very complex a logistics project and a very complex project for Yara, of which the vessel is just a small part. So given the COVID-19, Yara sent out a press release recently saying that in the circumstances that they're facing right now with just handling their own day-to-day -day operation, uh, the further development of the, the project has been put on hold. It is not cancelled, it's put on hold. But this means that when the vessel is coming out from the yard, it's not necessarily put into operation immediately. So we are now in discussions with Yara and all the other partners in the project to see where this will go from yard delivery later this year. That's Pia Melling from Marsley, the Kongsberg Willemsen joint venture that has been formed to become the industry's first autonomous ship management company. We'll hear more from her next week, but also from the man who has the difficult job of coordinating the work looking at the IMO regulations on safety to see what may need to be looked at should regulations for development of unmanned ships in international waters become a reality. And this may explain some of the reasons I see things happening in international waters a lot slower than in coastal regions. But now we look at what's been happening in the technology world with our regular update from Nick Chubb at Thetius, which has its own report on autonomous shipping developments that you may want to get hold of. Thanks, Craig. The big news this week is that the Korean government is making a heavy investment in autonomous shipping technology. South Korea, the world's second largest shipbuilder, is investing 135 million US dollars to set up a task force to enable the construction of crewless vessels that will be operated from centers ashore. This is one of the largest investments in the technology we've seen to date, and it puts Korea on a competitive path with China and Japan, who have both made considerable strides in autonomy in recent years. It also pushes European countries even further behind in the race to develop fully autonomous ocean-going ships. One of the interesting side effects of startups entering a market is the increase in price transparency. Once they've worked out a strategy, many startups will happily publish their full pricing. It's a phenomenon that almost always improves overall transparency in the market and has repeated itself over and over again in sectors like marketing and advertising, travel and retail. This week, I was surprised to learn that Boston Dynamics, the company behind some of the world's most lovable or scary industrial robots, 
is adopting transparent pricing for its robot dog, Spot. It's now possible to buy the four-legged machine direct from their website for just $74,500. That's obviously a lot more expensive than a regular dog, but when you consider that the robot is currently being used to do dull, dirty, and dangerous jobs in mining, agriculture, construction, and emergency response, it is actually remarkably cheap. There's no signs of spot being deployed at sea anytime soon, but transparent pricing is making an appearance. US-based maritime technology startup so far, Ocean Technologies, has a wide range of smart boys and sensing technologies available with transparent pricing. Their spotter weather sensing boy costs $4,200. And again, it's available to buy directly from their website. You're probably wondering why this is important. Well, one of the key barriers to technology adoption in maritime is price. There's a natural depreciation of the cost of producing new technologies over time. But in markets where transparency is poor, those cost reductions don't get passed on to customers and the progress of mass adoption slows. Our industry needs to solve some pretty tough problems in the next 10 years or so, and the mass adoption of new technologies will be a key enabler to finding the solutions. Lastly, if you still think esports and online games are just for geeks, you need to think again. Thanks in part to being pandemic-proof, the esports industry is seeing some crazy numbers. So an example, a professional football match has 22 players, the biggest stadiums can seat around 80,000 people, and the average Premier League match has 2 million viewers in 2019. By contrast, a recent Fortnite Live event hosted 12 million players simultaneously. A further 8.4 million spectators watched the event live on YouTube or Twitch. But that's not the most impressive part. The capacity of the game server only allowed 12 million players. Registration had to be shut down 60 seconds after it opened. Millions of players were left disappointed as they were unable to access the game. This stuff actually really matters because it shows what's possible today in the world of gaming and simulation. It's going to have a knock-on effect for the next generation of seafarer training, centers, and simulators. Coming back to transparent pricing, the days of maritime training centers paying a healthy six-figure sum for a full mission simulator are definitely numbered. Nick Chubb from Thetius. Now that's it for this episode. I'll continue my journey on autonomous ships in our next episode. And you can find some of the latest news on technology, startups and business cases, as well as research by checking out Fathom World and subscribing to the Fathom World weekly newsletter, The Transformation. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast using Spotify, Apple Podcast, SoundCloud or Acast, or looking for it on fathom.world slash podcast. Until the next time.